1: Welcome to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Each week, we select a recently published book and interview its author to learn more about how they became interested in their subject and to learn insights about their work. Today, we are interviewing Dale Maharidge about his book, Bringing Mulligan Home, The Other Side of the Good War. This book is something of a departure from our regular offerings. Normally, our authors are established academics specializing in the field of military history. Dale Meharich, however, is an award-winning journalist who, prior to bringing Mulligan home, has had only limited exposure to the subject of the Pacific Theater in World War II. What he does bring, however, is a personal stake in the topic. His father, Steve Meharich, took part in the assaults on Guam and Okinawa as a member of the 6th Marine Division. As a child and then as a young man, Dale was both enthralled and frightened by his father's regular accounts of the war, enthralled as a son learning more about his father's experiences in combat, frightened by the storm of emotions and anger that also accompanied his stories. Inspired to learn more about his father's service, Dale came to understand how post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury shaped his father's post-war life as well as that of the dozen other Marines whose interviews are included in the book. Bringing Mulligan Home is a book that frankly left me shaken. Though written in a journalistic style, Meharic reserves the bulk of the text for the personal testimony of his 12 interview subjects. The accounts they weave spare no word or emotion as they offer a harsh testimony of the power and violence of the Pacific War. The collected narratives present a visceral account of combat that rivals Eugene Sludge's classic with the old breed, while also bearing witness to John Dower's conclusions in his groundbreaking monograph, War Without Mercy. And while the book does occasionally lag, caught up in inconsistencies and misconclusions, in the larger perspective these are all minor flaws. Bringing Mulligan home captures the ugly, nightmarish side of the Pacific War. Never, however, at the expense of the humanity of his father, or, for the most part, his compatriots. There is one exception, of course, but more on that in the interview. Hello again, this is Bob Wintermute with New Books in Military History. Uh, Today I'm in the journalism department at Columbia University, and I'm chatting with Dale Moherich about his new book, Bringing Mulligan Home, The Other Side of the Good War. Now, the buzz about this book since its release earlier this year is remarkable. I mean, it's been shortlisted as a main selection of the Military Book Club. It's been excerpted in Reader's Digest. Top pick for BBC Magazine and Amazon. It's been highlighted on C-SPAN. Now, these are just a few of the major accolades it's received. Normally, when I do intros for my interviews, I often say about how much I've enjoyed a book. But bringing Mulligan home really goes beyond anything I've read for new books to date. I would say it's equal in power and scope to both Eugene Sledge's classic memoir, With the Old Breed, and John Dower's groundbreaking study, War Without Mercy. While the stark testimony of 12 Marine veterans of the fighting on Guam and Okinawa is the centerpiece of the book, it is so much more than a collection of combat horror stories. The story about how the experience of combat lingers for decades... For so many participants, becomes a quest on the part of the veteran's son to understand the truth of his father's pain. And along the way, we are taken on a quest for both understanding and forgiveness, not only for the author, but in a very symbolic sense for many of the veterans, living and dead, on both sides of the Pacific War. Dale left that very elaborate intro. <laughs> How are you
0: doing today? I'm doing well. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm still kind of absorbing what you said about me. Um <laughs> the the you know, I didn't set I, I I didn't set out to write a book. Um right. I set out to discover my father. I did my initial foray into looking into this after he died. I learned enough to know what happened to him a little bit in World War Two and I satisfied myself at that point. Right. My friends were saying, Why did you write about this? This isn't about that. This right. is about me. Um I you know, I I don't know if, I was, if at the beginning, if I would have think, if I thought about doing the book, I might have been too overwhelming. I may never have done it. Sure. Too, too, too intense, too personal.
1: Well, I mean, that's one thing that you know, strikes me about it, I mean, from the very beginning. I mean, you, you stayed up front, even in the book, that, you know, this is, this is your family. I mean, this is, this is confronting family memories and family experiences. It, it's very touching. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to do for an author of any, any, any kind of a medium. And, you know, you, then you go from there through the journey to the final trip to Okinawa, and there you have another epi- series of epiphanies. It, it makes this so different from those standard Greatest Generation tribute narratives. Well, you know, wow. What's really to take that step? Well, I wanted to learn about the mysterious man
0: in the picture, Mulligan. That was my initial quest. Uh, my dad had a picture of a, him and a buddy from Guadalcanal uh, growing up. Only once did he talk about the picture, but in the vaguest terms, they he said, they blame me, but I, but I didn't kill him. I didn't kill him. And he died, and I didn't know who he was. Yeah. So I, that was a very simplistic quest. But as I dug in, I started finding these guys, and it was quite a quest. Uh, eventually, it became 12 years. I called. I put in the book hundreds of calls. It's countless thousands. I don't want to sound wow. hyperbolic. Uh, I got the muster rolls from the unit. Yeah, and I wanted. To, okay, I decide I'm going to find every guy who's alive. I'm going to talk to
1: him. Right. Who was in my dad's company? Right. This is this is 60 years after the war. This is. It started with yeah. 60.
0: It was 60 after. Ended up being by the end, you know, almost 70 after. Um, and so I I started talking to these guys, and I realized something. Near the end, they were opening up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realized my dad, if he lived a little longer, he was on. And he was on the road to opening right. up. Something like getting near the end made these memories. Uh, and it was okay to talk about yeah. this further. It's, I realized I couldn't have gotten this 20 years before. Right. These guys wouldn't have talked. Right. Um, some of the best interviews came from guys who were near death uh, in terms of they wanted to unload, they wanted to uh, understand what happened to them. Some of them, like Jim Lockridge, was extremely uh, self-reflective. Right. Uh, and so I, 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 I was immediately taken in by this. And then concurrent with that, I grew up my father had a lot of Japanese items in a trunk in our attic. I used to sneak up there when I was a kid. Sure and look sure. at them, you know, any son yeah. you know, or all you know, but I, I think any any male who has a father in the military understands what, what my motive. And I a passport and all these objects. And even as a tiny boy, I realized how valuable and intense they were. Mm-hmm. You know, kids will like destroy things. That we didn't do that, Our, as right. kids, it was like that was a sacred. This was almost like a sacred object. Yeah. exactly. So uh, there was this passport. I wondered, how my father killed this guy. Um, and it's only the way we can get the passport, obviously. Yeah. I, mean, I assumed. And there were other objects. And long story short, to complete the journey, I went to Okinawa and I found the families of these objects and repatriated them. And there were right. lots of surprises. We'll get into those maybe in a little right. bit. But it was a, it was a, it was a, uh, and I wanted to understand the Japanese perspective of the war. Right. And again, I grew up with, you know, the, the binary vision of the war. And it's more complicated than that. A lot of these Japanese guys don't want to be in the war anymore, my dad did. Sure. You know, I think we think uh, in terms of history as this monolithic enemy who hates us. And, and they're all the same, no matter what war or what era. And, and especially with Japan, though. Right. And I found guys who were just like my dad. Last thing on earth, I wanted to do be shooting at people and killing people. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I humanized the, the the my father's demons in a lot of ways by going there.
1: Well, that's part of, I guess, you know, the, the importance of confronting, you know, the past or confronting the demons in your past and, and trying to find peace. I wonder, you, know, you mentioned about how so many uh, veterans are now talking about the war. I wonder, though, if it's a sense of they're comfortable in talking with you as. A an external person, not in their family, but also somebody who has that link to their other family, their their wartime. Person. Right. Yeah, it was interesting.
0: I mean, unlike other journalistic projects where I've come in as the outsider, mm-hmm. uh, I was an insider in terms of my dad was there with them. Right. And and I gave them trust and, and exactly. And I you know and I explained my dad had issues, and I didn't understand early on. I just, one of my discoveries was my father had two extremely serious blast concussion injuries, or more, but at least two, right. which probably caused him to be a little crazy. Uh, according to the doctors I interviewed, his symptoms of rage were... Are, are classic. classic TBI. Exactly. Related. So uh, I, I didn't know any of this starting out, but, but these guys did relate to me in that, you know, I knew, they knew my father was troubled. Some of them knew they were troubled themselves. And, and it was like they were helping me figure out my father. And they knew that they were doing that. Right. Uh, and so, very intimate, more than any. I've done ten books.
1: Nothing yeah. like this. This is, this was right in the mirror. And yet the, their spouses or their sons and daughters would come to you after and say, they never talk about it with me. Yes. They can't talk about it with me. Joe, Joe Ross Block. I'm not, I
0: sent him a book. And I've heard, I've, I actually, I just... I'm sending books to uh, uh, one of the guys in L.A. I just saw him two weeks ago when I was out in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So some of the guys have contacted me. We've talked more. And the, uh, Joe Rosblock, who at that last time I talked to him, still hadn't told his daughters about the war. Uh, he was very, uh, at first, hostile to me. Yeah. Uh, and then he opened up, and he wouldn't, but he would never meet with me. It was only a phone friendship. Many conversations over the years, hours, and sometimes we talk for two and three hours at a time. Sure, confessional over the phone, almost like I'm grew up Catholic, you know, a little, little screen between me and the priest. Yeah, uh, uh, we both had that screen, and um, and he he told me I was the first person he ever talked to anybody about the war with. So of all the guys, all the 29 that I found, he's the most still um, um, guarded, guarded, mm-hmm. coping with it, but on the phone poured his soul out to me. Right. And he kept telling me, I don't know if I'm helping you. And I said, Joe, I said, you don't understand how much you're helping me. More than you think. I know my father. He was at the second blast concussion, he was mm. he carried Mr. Bulligan's body uh, right. uh, from that, that blast exp on, on Okinawa. And so um you know t- the power of that blast, what happened to Mr. Ross Block my dad was right next to him. So uh, you know Joe doesn't understand, still don't understand how much that is meant.
1: It's as much a confessional for them. I mean, you're you're offering them absolution in a way. In a weird way, for going to that Catholic
0: thing that I, you know, I'm an ex-Catholic, but still it's kinda of like uh, one friend who read the early manuscript of the book, an editor friend, said he says, Dale, this is like a this is like a group therapy session. Really? And I didn't think about it that way until that moment. But it really yeah, I felt and my journey of discovery, their journey of discovery over the years uh, especially some of the more reflective guys like Mr. Lockridge, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Fenton Grainerd. Right. Um, they were like they were struggling to understand what the, the poet. Um, oh, Mr. Lanciotti. Yes, yeah. Joe Lanciotti, the poet. Uh,
1: well, Joe Joe had done his own journey. He was
0: a he's a writer as
1: well. He, well, Joe Lanciotti, I mean, he's even though he's a writer and he's confronted these issues, you still get the sense that he's not done confronting. These no, issues. no, Joe wrote a self published book called The Timid Marine
0: about the verboten subject cracking up in the battlefield. Yeah. 26,000 guys cracked up on Okinawa. No one talks no about one it. Talks about. Joe talked about it. Uh, the book is stunning. and This journey into his psyche of the, about why and how he cracked up. Mm-hmm. So he's reflected. But when Joe wouldn't meet with me either at first, and finally we met and we talked. Joe was, was rather uh, off-putting at first. He said, so you're going through a midlife crisis the very first time I talked to him. Trying to figure out I said, Yeah, I guess you got me on that. He's well read my book and maybe we'll talk. Uh so you know uh, I read his book and then we finally connected, we talked, we met, and absolutely. Joe is the demons are screaming at him. Right. He said he said, I talk about seeing the brains of a Japanese soldier run over by a tra- tank tank. He's I'll probably have that on my deathbed. You don't you don't get over this stuff. No. That's the thing that the myth of the World War II generations. They came back. They got over it. No, 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 no. They didn't get over it.
1: Well, another, another mythology, too, is the idea that the World War II veterans all came back to parades. And really, the only parades there were were for the big generals and for the guys who were here. The guys from Germany, the guys from the Pacific, they came back over years. Exactly. Your dad didn't come back in 1945. He came back, he came back in
0: 46. And there was no parade for him. He comes home to the south side of Cleveland, this old Russian woman, Stara Baba, we called them, uh, Mm -hmm. Russian immigrants. She comes up to him and she spat at his feet. And she said, the good ones died over there. You know, we think about the the Vietnam guys, the myth of them being spat on. My dad was spat on, you know. He was drunk for four years, drunk out of his mind. One of the haunting things in my research is I dug into who died when because I was was going through the muster rolls. sure. A significant number died before 1950. Yes. When I dug in deeper, they drunk themselves to death. Cirrhosis, suicide, alcohol-related deaths. And and then I, since the book has come out, I'm hearing from the the sons and daughters. And last week I had an email from a woman whose father killed himself in 1961. He had screaming nightmares. He couldn't take it anymore, and he killed himself. Another woman wrote to me a few days later It said her father, um, uh, uh, she found out after he died, had a lobotomy. Because he was afraid he was going to hurt his family. Because voluntary of lobotomy. Voluntary lobotomy. So, <laughs> here I thought my dad and we had issues. It's a parade of horror. And actually, I'm hearing some, some Vietnam guys who, talking to the World War II guys as they got older, realized Vietnam
1: and the Pacific battles were very similar. Yes, yes. Did you do, you know, talk about method here. I mean, I do oral history. And before I go in and talk with with veterans, I always, you know, try to refresh myself in some of these experiential accounts, the classic ones that have been published. I also do background research into the battle in question, or the campaigns in question. What kind of prep work did you do going into these? Wow. I tried to
0: read as much as possible, but you know, the literature on the Pacific. Very scam. Extremely skinny. I was shocked how skinny. Uh, somebody, I forget who, said there's only 15% of the material in the war went to the Pacific That's Theater, weird. and the proportion of literature is about the same. And so to, learn, to look at battle strategy and 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 what was going at Nimitz, there's nothing critical of Nimitz out no, there. The, he needs a good book. Biography, actually. You're right. There's a If there's a written record. Now, MacArthur was was crazy and all over the map, and he changes positions on things. I mean, but he had many... His memoir was very interesting to me. So I, I drew on MacArthur's memoir. I drew on um, uh, uh, William Manchester's... to yeah,
1: Goodbye Darkness. You yeah. know,
0: book with flaws, but one of the better books that I found that really got into some of the dark psychological stuff that happened to guys... Manchester reflecting on his own experience. Some later book, Dower's book, was invaluable to right. me. Um, uh, then there was a book published, and I'm forgetting it, The, 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 the spice for Nimitz by, um, I'm forgetting the author's name now, and it was mm-hmm. it was the only book that really looked at, and there was some critical study of the bad intelligence, right. which was stunningly horrible. Uh, he wrote, I forget the author's name, in spice for Nimitz, he wrote that. The, um, the Iwo Jima, they, they transferred out all the photo analysts just before Iwo Jima, and they didn't know how to read the, the aerials. So we go into Iwo Jima, and, of course, yeah. everyone knows that Iwo Jima was just a nightmare.
1: And then the same mistake was made again in Okinawa. Well, in Okinawa, too, you have the issue of the dual branch command. Well, with the Army uh, and the Marines serving together, but more, more tellingly, no, the commander of the, of the expedition, Simon Bolivar Buckner, It's questions about his suitability for leadership. Oh,
0: exactly, exactly, and and Nimitz's battle plan, and what they didn't know, and the under, you know, the Marines even then wanted a three to four to one ratio when they landed at an island. It wasn't even two to one, right? Uh, And so on and on and on. You could look at the, you know, the. So I I wanted to understand all of that, but the more I read, the more I studied, the less I knew. knew. And I tried to get into West Point to Mm. see how the battle is, is 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 taught there. And they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't talk to me. Interesting. One thing about this book is, it's not political. Right. I mean, how the battle is fought, we can debate. But politics, that, that I never asked, I don't care. It wasn't my issue. Um, I just wanted to understand how and why decisions were made.
1: Well, in a way, it's micro-history, you know, in the most personal sense, of course, because you're talking about your father's experiences and what, did, what the war did to your father. But then it goes by extension to what it did to each of the men, that it were with your father, or knew your father. And then it grows into something different, which we'll come to in a bit when, when we've been talking about Kennedy and Okinawa. Um, but really, it is a microhistory, And yeah. perhaps on such a level that many historians, professional historians, or military professionals may steer stay clear up, or may not want to confront directly. Well, anything time you confront what battle does to human beings, uh, and I say human
0: being because there's women in battle today. Yes. Uh it's it's dark, it's 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 you come back damaged. You are never and every guy who talked who was honest with me said you you're not the same when you come home. Right. And and over and over, I mean I, I, Tom Price, who I, I, I just saw a couple weeks ago, his son wanted to go to Iraq and volunteer after nine eleven, and he says, Don't go. Mm-hmm. This is not worth it. Right. And I found out after my. And that's not a
1: political statement. That's mm. the statement of someone who's been there to telling his this member of his family. Yes, exactly.
0: And most of these guys are very conservative. These are not liberal guys. Right. Uh, so this is not a it's not a liberal or conservative thing. This is a war thing. Right. And I don't think being against war is liberal or conservative. We shouldn't. Be. Um, actually some of the biggest hawks are my liberal friends and some of the (laughs) and
1: and conversely some of those who are most opposed to war those who are trained and skilled and sold it precisely
0: that's why i say it's not a political book so i Mm -hmm. i needed to ground myself and then and then get into these issues of like you know what does war mean and and what does it do to a society and and you know Somebody asked me, you know, are you anti-war? After uh, an interviewer after I read the book, and I said, well, I think it's apparent. And she said, no, I don't really, I don't really
1: know from reading your book. Uh, Well, that's interesting too, because that raises another another possible critique or criticism about what some label war pornography. You know, the creation of narratives or images or of programming about military conflict that is gruesome, that is graphic. But the intention here is to glorify the experience. Yes. Well,
0: Chris Hedges gets into that in his, into his book, A yes. War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Yeah. And I, I read him, of course, too, and I, years ago for another project. And I found his, his take fascinating. Mm-hmm. Every generation must learn the horrors of war. Yeah. Um, and r- realize that you shouldn't go. And I found out from the guy who bought my father's business, my father's long dead, I visited him in 2011, and he was training him. He told him if there's a war I'm driving my sons to Canada. My dad never would have told us that. No. And my dad was very conservative. Uh, well
1: your dad, the sense I have from reading the book and the passages about your father is you know, his conservatism is also rooted in the idea in a sense of citizen obligation. You know He did it because he had to. And had it been your circumstance, which very close we was, uh huh. Yeah, you know, he would have expected you to do the same. Yeah, yeah. But but also you have to understand he
0: got three draft notices, and he, he 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 was when the cops came is when he, he went okay, okay, we he'll scratch that <laughs> you know, yes,
1: he's, he was
0: um i mean he went uh you know, and maybe in a different era, maybe he would
1: have been like one of the Vietnam guys who but in that era you didn't yeah. do that you didn't question there's a there's a later author Christian Appy, who writes about the Vietnam war in his book working class war, describes in detail how the war was primarily fought by people of the, the working class, the rural and urban working class, regardless of race. And these are people who, for them, there was no op- no question. There was no choice. You did it because it's what you did. If you were called, you went. They weren't, picked, they weren't looking forward to war. In many cases, they didn't want to go. Right. But they went because they had
0: to. Well, it, was the, it, was the, it was that World War II mentality of... You buck up and you do it, mm-hmm. and 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 I think a lot of them got over there. At least the ones I know, the Vietnam yeah. guys. And you know, as I say though, I, I talked and I I've talked to Vietnam guys about this book and about World War II. And the more I look into it, and it could, it'd be an interesting book, even to itself, the similar similarities in yeah. their at the real the the end life of life attitudes towards, of the World War II guys, with several exceptions of the guy in my. There were a few, a few, few. a few, and I've heard from one of them who's he he's critical of my take on on Nimitz and Nimitz can do no wrong and and you know we agree to disagree. Um, uh, So not everyone is 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 uniform. There's no there's no monolith in these guys. In general, the majority were anti-war. In general, the majority advise their sons and grandsons don't go to any of these modern wars. It's not worth it. Right. And again,
1: they're very conservative. Well, you know, you turn to the question of TBI, traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. I mean, obviously, this was both of these were conditions that your father was intimately acquainted with. But yet, he he passed away long after these conditions were understood and accepted. But did he he rejected it. Well, TBI... I didn't know about TBI until
0: I got deep into this research. He knew about PTSD, and he was like, get over it. How ah, you get over it. I mean, I many a time he would say that. These Vietnam guys, just get over it. Yeah. You know, move on. It was the past. Forget about it. We can argue about PTSD, but TBI, it's chemical. It's physical. Mm-hmm. TBI, the Dr. Smith at Penn mm-hmm. described to me, he said, it's like taking silly putty. Right. If you take silly putty and pull softly, that's your your axons that connect your brain cells. Right. You can have a little jiggling, and mm-hmm. you'll, your brain's fine. Blast concussion. If you pull it hard, it snaps in the middle, yeah. and and that's what happens to your axons. And they wither and atrophy. They never reconnect, mm-hmm. and and it causes yeah. plaques in the brain. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it now in football yeah. players and hockey players. You don't get over TB. No, you don't.
1: It's permanent. It is interesting because in the First World War, before the diagnosis of shell shock, psychological issues associated with with war combat or shell shock were explained away as being the result of physiological damage. Right. And in 1917 through 1920, that diagnosis was rejected. It was thrown out in favor of, well, it's all shell shock. It's all emotional. Yes. And now we discover that now actually that earlier etiology of the condition is more true than we realized. Yeah. Well, look, in PTSD, I learned, you know, and this is, it's complicated. We don't, what we don't
0: know, so what the scientists tell me what we don't know is stunning. And they, they admit they know less than, they, than they, they want to know. They're on the journey. But PTSD and TBI go hand in hand. They do. And so, you know, you get a TBI and if you have PTSD with it, it exa- they exacerbate mm-hmm. each other. Some of my father's behavior was PTSD, wasn't TBI. So you don't get over, you certainly don't get over TBI. And I frankly don't think you, PTSD is real and you don't get over that either. Yeah. You've taken these horrible things. You cannot be not affected by it. Right. Um, you can be, some people deal with maybe better than others, but the science isn't exact. But, oh, so my father. Like we were the one night I was, you know, he had a business in the basement grinding industrial cutting tools. At the right. age of twelve and thirteen, I started working with him. And that one night, I write about it in the book where he he started screaming, and I'm not sure if I should use his language or or that uh, sort grown of up audience. He uh, he was talk, talking about the night that, that all these Marines were crying for their mothers around him. This is on the Orote Peninsula. I found out later uh, when I met the guys who were there, and he started screaming. Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up! You don't have no fucking mother. Top of his lungs screaming as he's grinding, and I realized as a twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-old boy that he wasn't talking to me anymore. He was yeah. screaming what he was screaming that night. Yeah. He was reliving the moment.
1: Yeah, that experience too, because you're not alone in the house when that's happening either. You? Your mother's upstairs. Well, your, your but your brother, your siblings are upstairs. Yeah, yeah. So you
0: guys are living around this. Exactly, it's, it's part of our existence. Uh, He would never talk about the war around them, though, Mm -hmm. when they were in the room. Only me. Why you? Because I think I was curious and I listened. I learned never ask questions. He never said don't ask questions. It was like instinctive. You don't ask questions. When he would talk, I would just listen rapidly. And I became, I think, the person he could talk to in those bits and pieces. Um, My brother wasn't interested. My brother wasn't interested in the business. My mother didn't want to hear about the war. Yeah. Uh, even if he wanted to talk about it, she didn't.
1: How do you deal with, you know, this is the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. How do you deal with the the media machine that is creating the greatest generation? Oh, You God. know, the TV shows, the movies. Anytime there was something on glorifying
0: war, there'd be parade on the TV. he got go apoplectic. Uh, you know, he didn't like memorials. He didn't like, he's guys who wear their uniform. You know, he just, he was, he was abhorred by it. Yeah. He, in a weird way, he was very... Modern that way in terms of, uh, and many it's the it's the epigraph to the book. In many different contexts, many times he said there are no heroes; you just survive. Right, and to a degree, many of the guys I interviewed said pretty much the same thing. Yeah, uh, uh, and so he didn't like glorification; he didn't like monuments. Hence, I don't like monuments. Yeah. I mean, I, William Manchester I think says it best in his book uh, "Goodbye Darkness." He said monuments are always beautiful there always, you know, except for maybe the Korean War monument in Washington, which is yeah. haunting. If you go there at night on a rainy, snowy, sleepy yeah, night, they come out of the woods. Oh God, that you have nightmares. Yeah, most memorials are beautiful, and I agree. It's just like, yeah, yeah. So, and this thing about heroes—we would like, you know, it's modern. It's modern. Everyone's a hero. You know, uh, everyone in 9-11 was a hero. Everyone in World War Two was a hero. No, no, everyone wasn't a hero. And and so I think, I think there's think a danger a, in that kind of canonizing of of our actions.
1: War is war. Do you think that's an outgrowth of our? I don't know how to describe it, our entitlement society, or a sense that we all feel that everybody should be recognized, or everybody's contribution should be acknowledged, even when there are no contributions. It's hmm. kind of like Garrison Keillor's think about where all the children are above
0: average. Yeah. you know, every, Everyone can't be above average and, can, and noble and heroic. Uh, I think a realistic view, and that's what I tried to take in the book, was a realistic view. Right. Yes, there were some things that were you could term heroic that were done. Um, mm-hmm. But was everyone a hero? No. Was the war? No war is noble, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, getting back to what you were talking about a little earlier, you know, I, I, you know, I, there is a place for war, you know, look, if somebody lands, you know, on the Jersey shore, I'll be out there with a rifle in 10 seconds. I mean, you know, I mean, there, there, there are places for it. I just think that you shouldn't seek them out. Right. They should be, it should, war is a, I never forget, I interviewed a sheriff in Iowa. I lived in an Iowa town for a year for a different project mm-hmm. and I, went, I spoke to the JCs there. This is when, when operation, uh, the Iraq operation just started uh, after 9-11. And he, was, he told me, he said, I was the only one in that room with those JCs who was against Iraq. And he's a very conservative, religious man. Right. And I asked, well, what, why? And he said, look, he says, war is essentially taking their children, pouring gas on them, and lighting a match. That's what war is, right. he says. And I, I, there's a place for war, he said. But you have to be willing to do that because that's what it really is. Right. And so I thought about that, and I thought about that that guy's comments as I was doing this this book. Uh, you know, there's even if you're fighting a war, you know, the way we fought against Japan, and Dawar gets into yeah. this.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, it was it was they were less than human. We had a policy of pretty much taking no prisoners. You look at the numbers, I think it's like 380-some-thousand Germans were uh, uh, incarcerated soldiers in the United States in World War II. Mm-hmm. Several hundred thousand. Yes. Dauer points out there were just a little over 5,000 Japanese taken yep. prisoner. And the myth is they didn't surrender. Well, they found out from the guys on Guam, uh, Mr. Palmasani bayoneted uh, a Japanese soldier who asked him for a lucky strike cigarette. And he said, You want a lucky strike? I'll give you one. And he sticks up a bay in it. The guy had surrendered and he, he said, You take any prisoners on Guam? He said, No. So the Japanese Bushido War Code You know, was against surrendering, but a lot of the guys wanted to live. They didn't care about the Bushido War Code. And so but when they realized if we surrender we're gonna die anyway, then it
1: became you know the self fulfilling prophecy of they won't surrender, we have to kill them all. Well, you know, Dower also makes a point in War Without Mercy that the nature of the war in the Pacific further brutalized the participants on both sides. And so you see this escalation of brutality that becomes almost inescapable. It's like a, a self-fulfilling cycle. Following a landing, the bitter resistance, the brutal resistance, and which becomes even more effective as the war goes on. As the Japanese give up the bayonet charges of Guam, and adopt the in-depth tunnel fighting of Okinawa produces even greater acts of savagery, and it, it just it feeds off itself. Exactly, it escalated, and and you know
0: I wonder, you know, you know, when I get into MacArthur saying go around the islands, mm-hmm. oh, is, o- it's an island, the, uh, Okinawa by uh, spring of '45 was cut off by air and sea. I mean the Yamato, the ship, Yamato, Yamato, excuse me. Uh, was with steaming something then have a chance against yeah, our it was aircraft. A suicide journey. It was yeah. Stupid. You know, and so they're cut off. Go around them. You know, take an item nearby, make an airfield. That wasn't the mentality. And I I would like to see the book on Nimitz's thought process. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh well in Nimitz's case too, I mean he's responding to strategic directives that are given him. Exactly. As well. Exactly. So he's he's given the task of uh, carrying out or completing the directives given him, which were, as we moved close to the end of the war, bring what we had done to Germany against Japan, yes. i.e. bring strategic bombing to bear, and see if, what that will do. I didn't sleep while doing this book.
0: Um, it's not only hearing the stories of these guys. These guys were within dozens of feet, or less than my, to my father. and realizing my father... Had gone through this horror, and and I I always you know thought about he was so messed up. I thought as a boy, but now as I'm doing the project, I realize it's amazing he was as normal as he was, yeah. given what he yeah. that happened to him. My dad was actually uh, a pretty amazing guy to be as normal as he was in the face of the traumatic brain injury and everything mm-hmm. that he saw. So uh, you know I I I had this, you know, I don't believe in the psychobabble to closure. That doesn't exist. But understanding of my father was just an amazing journey. And I think for a lot of the kids of the guys who were, like, involved...
1: I want to ask about that. Yeah. For them, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Because it's, it's not just about the... The PTSD It's not just about the individual who's afflicted with it. It's also people that live around that. Yes. Experience that.
0: And like Mr. Granger's kids, Jim in particular, and, and, and Wesley, they... They they were wrapped, and and, and Mr. Grainert's memory and descriptions got more vivid each visit. And I remember one time that was the last visit that uh, uh, Fenton was talking about having nightmares about the war and thinking about the war, and, and it was cinematic, and it wasn't it wasn't false memory.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He was telling me things other guys had told me. The same, so clearly he was sharpening as he got near the end of his life. He was probably about. The last time I saw me was about maybe eight, nine months before he died. Right. And so I, I kind of got worried. I went to Jim, the son. I said, Jim, I said, ah, it's this bad for me to keep talking. He says, no, 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 no. He says, this is the best thing yeah. for all of us. Yeah. Because they grew up with the same kind of deal I grew up with. Fenton was understanding himself. Uh, uh, the sons were understanding themselves. With Mr. Lockridge. Mm-hmm. Now, the chapter on Mr. Lockridge is pretty rough. It is. He talks about yes. carving gold teeth out of cadavers, Japanese cadavers, glee- gleefully shooting Japanese soldiers in the stomach so they would die slower, but he's repentant he right. he He basically was confessing to me, and the second visit in particular, he said, that was a chicken shit thing to do, yeah. you know the guy's dead, let him be yeah. I mean, so he was analyzing his own life and his context in it I re- actually you know despite what that sounds like, I liked him mm-hmm. because he was, he was able to, to dissect his himself and see himself from afar and say, what the hell did I become? Yeah. And, and so anyway, he dies and I put all that in there and also about his, you know, sex with multiple women, you know, in very graphic language. Uh, and I thought, oh my God, you know, Melanie, his daughter, Melody, his daughter, you know, like, oh geez, you know? And uh, I, I talked to her on the phone uh, about a, Two months ago, just when the book came out, mm-hmm. and she was just so happy with the chapter, she says, "Dale, you helped my father get the poison out." Yeah, and so instead of being like a, you know horrified by her father, it, it was like redemptive. It was very redemptive. All this work, yeah. and so uh, getting to know the kids of the of the uh, of the of these of these guys was just as important as getting to know the guys yeah. because war affected. All of our families. We grew up, we basically, world war continued in many of these households after, the aftermath of the war. Wars don't end when the shooting stops, as I write.
1: You know, after your father's death, what gets us going, according to your own words, you know, you're you're looking to identify your father, find out who the ghosts are. You center on Herman Mulligan as, as, as the chief ghost. But then you get sidetracked almost immediately into your search when you talk to George Popovich. you want to describe that? Or can, can you comment on that? Well,
0: Mulligan, well, I, I quickly learned uh, that my dad was out of the company after Sugarloaf Hill in Okinawa. Blast concussion. Uh, a lot of the guys were taken out. Yeah. Uh, and, and I interviewed. And he's put back in, and they're east of Naha. Mm-hmm. And my dad's squad leader at this point. He's a VAR man. Right. And... I, I don't. Nobody who was. This is the thing about blast concussions. Anybody who's at any of these blast concussions, the memory is yeah. gone. So it's fragmented. It's pieces. Uh, but the mosaic that I put together is Mulligan throws a grenade into this burial tomb. It's mm-hmm. full of about estimated two thousand pounds of Japanese munitions, mm. and it went up like a volcano. Jim Lockwood yeah. told me, and a piece of the roof comes down on Mulligan. Now Mulligan was. His, his, his body is listed as not recovered. Joe Rosblock carried Mulligan's body that day. Right. What I think happened, my dad my dad felt guilty. One of two things happened. My dad was squad leader, and he ordered Mulligan to throw the grenade into the tomb. Right. Uh, my dad always said, I fucked up, but they made me sergeant anyway. Yeah. And there were orders, don't
1: mess with those tombs. Right. But in battle, as you know, what well, don't... Well, there are, you know... Potentially great sling so like for an ambush. They can make a good pillbox. Oh, there was machine yeah. gunners on
0: that ridge. I mean, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, there, was, there was a threat, and orders don't always get around. So yeah. every guy I talked to said, nobody blamed your dad. Mm-hmm. But, so he ordered Mulligan to throw the grenade, and or he took off his dog tags to stop the bleeding. I found out that Mulligan was a hemophiliac oh. from some of the guys. Oh. So um, Mulligan's carted off in his body. He's buried, I believe it's unknown, at the punch bowl. Right, so I I answered that question pretty fast. Didn't find his relatives. I sent hundreds of letters to um, kinfolk with the same name. Well, people who could be kinfolk with the same name in the Carolinas region. Mm -hmm. I made hundreds of phone calls. I visited.
1: It's a very common name. Oh, yeah, Yeah. Mulligan, and
0: then his 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 mother was Pat. He the the, the, the sister married into a Patterson, which is like Smith and stuff. Yeah, you know, and so. I never got DNA. I actually never got mulligans. But you know, I'm hoping a relative reads the book, mm-hmm. and we can get DNA. And the uh, military exhumes all the time. Yeah. Put a name on this it, grave. That's not over. I, I want to do that. Yeah. But this, as you say, it become a bigger quest. What does war mean to my family, me, mm-hmm. my family, the men's families, and an allergic question to our country. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the—I mean—the fifties and sixties are a reaction to all of that stuff.
1: I feel, yeah, uh, and so—and and in a way, so too are the eighties and the nineties, where we try to revalidate. Yes, the war years too. Exactly. Yeah. We, you know, yeah,
0: exactly. So we're living. You know, we've been living in in context with this with this this war. Uh, you know, my dad was messed up. No one acknowledged it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, just acknowledging the fact that these guys had TBI.
1: PTSD
0: and issues,
1: I think, is real important for our culture. But right. well, what I'm thinking, too, is when I mean, you know the, the context of the quest becomes almost a search for justice. Yes. Well, there was the case
0: of Mr. Kennedy. I grew up, my dad would grind in the basement, and I would hear about this guy, Kennedy. Park Avenue, New York City, money. But they raped a woman on Okinawa. And my dad. My dad was always—I um, wouldn't call him a feminist, but he was. My sister was going to go to college, and his brothers and family—women don't go to college. They're going to get married. Don't. My right. dad—he would always get upset when, when he told me when, like, a woman would come into the shop. He worked at Cleveland to a girl, and these guys would whistle. He—he he was a very pro-woman guy, right? So he was very old school in that regard. In a way, yeah, <laughs> very, very gentlemanly, genteel kind of. Right. But you don't—you don't do that to women. Right. And, and so he was abhor- abhorred the rape, but he, he worshipped the money. And he wanted to have position, and to him, Kennedy was making it in America, even though he was an asshole for raping right. the woman. So it was, a, it was a lot of hate with this guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can also see, too, like an ironic like detachment where here's this guy with all the money, and this guy had everything, and look what he is. Yeah, you know, that's what he is. And almost yeah. like a disdain for him. Yeah, it's, it's a weird...
0: And then I started meeting the guys and hearing everyone who was in that company knew Kennedy raped that woman. I heard it over and over and over. And so I went to see Fenton Greenard, and Greenard, in great detail, tells about the rape. But also, yeah. it was a rape, but he wasn't there. But the guys went up, a guy named Regliario. There's a bunch of guys, yeah. but Kennedy, Kennedy was sadistic. He had a thirty-eight pistol. The woman took it and tried to kill herself, but he'd unloaded it. I mean, he was a psychopath. So within a week of the rape, Kennedy, Grainert, this guy, Carp- not Carpenter, uh, and I forget the guy's name, he was in his 40s, he was an old man. Right. You know, these guys are in their 20s, although Fenton Grainert had a one and a half year old daughter at home, even though he was like 22 or whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, they're guarding this relay station on North Okinawa, and they had orders. Anything that moves, shoot in the night, it doesn't stop. So they order a halt, there's, there, the movement continues, they open up with the, with the light, I think it was the thirty caliber. Uh, and suddenly they hear a baby crying. They realize these weren't soldiers. So, so the older guy stayed, Greenert runs down, and there's a man and a woman with a baby strapped to each of their backs. Man, and woman are dead, babies are alive. One baby's arm is dangling by a thread. And Kennedy materializes next to him. And Grainer says, we've got to take these little fellows up to the, to the corpsman and get them, get them help. And Kennedy says, the hell we will. We'll be fighting their children. You know, you know we're not going to, you know, we've got to shoot them. Who's going to shoot these babies? I will. No, you won't. And he pulls the gun and threatens Fenton. I'll shoot, if you try to stop me, I'll shoot you. And he shoots both babies. And Fenton Grainer, 65 years later, was crying like a baby yeah. as he told this story. So, this Kennedy guy was this, I hadn't tried to look for him. And it was like a black hole I wrote in the quest. It was like, he was such a dark sounding character. Well, I started calling around. Long story short, I called this Kennedy. I said, is this Mr. Kennedy who was o- in Okinawa? Yes. I said my name, Dale Maharaj. He said, Steve, he was 5'9". nine. starts going off up on my dad. Yeah. And suddenly, who is this? How'd you get my number? You know, blah, blah. I never answered this phone. I have bad legs. You know, I don't remember anything. So mm-hmm. I said, I said, well, you know, I'm trying to find out about Mr. Mulligan, what happened. I don't remember anybody. Well, let me send you the picture. You know, me posted. You send it, but I don't I, you know. Blah, blah, blah. So he basically hanged up. It was a very short call. Yeah. I sent the picture. Two weeks later, I call. And it was like, hey, Dale, buddy, come on up. Uh, Why don't you come visit? What I said in the letter was I talked to 29 guys, 20-some guys from the company and did not say anything about, of course, about the rape or the right. baby killing. But he knew that by my talking to that many guys, I knew about the rape. He figured the bus was coming down. So we buried my mom and my dad at Arlington. I drove into the mountains, just very remote gravel road. Uh, he lives in a cabin way back in the woods. And I, this is like I've been a journalist for thirty some years. I've covered a couple of wars. This is the hairiest interview. So, en in route, I call Fenton Right. and they said, "You're not going to believe who I'm going to go see." And I said, "Kennedy." He was—he got really scared. He says, "Take a gun! Take a gun!" He was terrified of Kennedy still. So, there's a shock in the woods, and I walk up, and there's a screen door, and I knock, and his voice says, "Get in here." And I open the door. Look at this. And there's a bed, tight-sheeted bed with a revolver holster, empty of the revolver. Teddy bears weirdly on the walls. Very incongruous. I walk down this long hall, and there's this man, looks like Elmer Fudd, sitting in a chair with both hands under a blanket over him. And on the couch next to him is a pistol holster with the pistol missing. And I, showing no fear, even though I had fear, I said, Mr. Kennedy, it's great to meet you. I've heard about you since I was about eight years old. He one hand emerged, and we shook hands, and in three hours the left, the other hand never came out. And he talked about right here is cold Python. Yeah. you know And uh, it was a very tenuous interview. Um, about an hour in, I said, we talking about my, they made they made hooch on Guadalcanal. Yeah, my dad stole the raisins. So we talking about you know the the the, the raisin jack, the, the whiskey they the booze they made the, the and, and oh something else and his, the, the temperature went down in the room and he was well, I told my students don't shut up so I said something happened in Okinawa. yeah with two women said so that's what I heard and I just nothing he stared me. Daring contest. And I said, they, they, he said, they did something bad to him. I said, that's what I hear. And then two guys, two guys. I said, that's what I hear. I said, you know who they were? And he said, bah. I mean, he wasn't going to go. And the long story short is Kennedy, pathetic. I wish my dad could have seen him. Absolutely pathetic. He was a psychopath. He, maybe he's agonizing and I don't know it. Maybe he sleeps well. That he says. Hey, he goes to bed at five. Yet and he never goes to bed at night. And part of me is, I wish he would have just opened up. And part of me, I didn't expect any more out of him.
1: It's interesting for me as an oral historian reading that, and then having yeah. you tell the account. Uh, that's why I was, I was prompting you to tell. Was as an oral historian, you know, we, we come across not narratives like that, but it's always when that's <coughs> various, perhaps that your subject doesn't want to go to. Right. And the dilemma is, do you go down that route? Or do you allow them that privacy or an anonymity? Well, I'm a relatively
0: brave reporter,
1: person. Well, and that may be the distinction, because you also have a journalist background rather than being a historian. Of exactly. But I was mindful of
0: those those empty uh, weapon holsters. Oh, I bet you were. And <laughs> I wanted to say, look, Mr. Kennedy, I know you raped that woman. Don't bullshit me. I'm not that brave. Yeah. You know, if you were in a public place, I might have. But if he thought the bust was coming down, what he doesn't understand is, at that point, there was a statute of limitations on rape. Now, the baby killing is a different issue. Yeah. But he couldn't be prosecuted for it. Not bad. But I, I didn't push it.
1: No, well, they but The, they the babies, matters?
0: you could argue, you know, uh, 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 Carl Brothers told me, he said, we weren't even able to get treated. Who would have taken care of those babies? Yeah. Let's take the babies out of the equation.
1: The rape was heinous. right? you got to wonder, in, in this case, was it did the war trigger that in Kennedy, or did they have it in him to begin with? I wonder about that.
0: And, you know, he's from privilege. He didn't have to go to war. He volunteered. He went down to Times Square and volunteered.
1: <laughs> well, again, a way. lot of guys As did. You said, a different war. But, yeah.
0: but he told me, I wanted the a jab, And that tells me, and I think every war attracts psychopaths. And I've talked to...
1: Well, there's a bit, you know, in, in defense of that, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of... Narratives, a lot of interviews, a lot of, a lot of testimony. Of people saying, in the midst of, of the Pearl Harbor fervor or the, the, the rush to war. And, of course, as Dower says, Japanese have been, you know, even before the war, have been the subjects and the objects of racism and yes. stereotyping. Yes. So it was only, you know, natural, well, I wouldn't call it natural, but expected that people would voice those kinds of attitudes. But it was interesting. I got a letter from an uh, uh, army doctor
0: who was in Afghanistan. And he read the book. Right. I read it twice, Dale, I recommend it to my patients. Right. I recommend it to my colleagues. We had this email exchange, you know, fifteen hundred word emails back and forth. Some really intense conversations via email. He's 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 I don't want to say where he's based now because he can get not relevant. Relevant. Yeah, not relevant. But yeah, but he said, Dale, we have psychopaths here too. Oh yes. Yeah. So I think every war oh yes you know, we don't know who they are, but every war attracts certain type of person who they have license to do whatever they want. And I think, I, think, I think I'm on a shrink. I can't get inside Kennedy's head. I think he was one of those times. Mm-hmm. He, he really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I've got to ask, you know, being so close to this father's story, it's your story. But you're also a professional journalist. Did you feel at any time that there were any special challenges or perhaps conflicts in working on this project? Or bringing us to where it went, they were very internal. Um,
0: I think if my father could materialize in this room, he would say, "I'll just forget," you know, "forget, leave it alone." Yeah. Secretly, he'd be going right on because my father was powerless against a lot of crap. Yeah, and. I was a, in the book, I was able to uh, look at a lot of the crap that was arrayed against him, and I think he would be proud that I was doing that. Mm-hmm. My mother is rolling in her grave. She, this is family secrets, you don't talk about this, yeah. she would not be happy. So my demons, I'm sorry, my demons were not, um, were not, uh, with the journalism or, you know, it was, it was internal... As I said, I was worried about talking to these guys and triggering memories. But they themselves and their children said, "No, no, that's not an issue." Yeah. Don't. I, I, I checked myself on that. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be like with, with Mr. Rosblock. Initially, he said, yeah. "Don't use my name." And I said, yeah. "Fine, I'll change your name." I had no issue yeah. with that. And then he brought it up. He said, "You know, these kids today have to know what it's really like.
1: Use my name."
0: And are you sure, Mr. Rosblock? I mean, I was always very conscious of not. Uh, well, you don't want to betray the memory of these guys, either. No, no. They experience And I, you know, I wanted them... And some of them were more open than others, but Mr. Lockridge said, he said, I'm glad somebody's putting it down like it was. He... I didn't have to ask... He was deaf. I couldn't ask any questions. Yeah. When you read the book and you see that, he's a natural storyteller. Mm-hmm. It poured out of him. He knew, this is for the record. Let's get it down. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know... I wanted to honor that. And, yeah. and, you know, the last thing Lockridge wanted was me to whitewash it. Right. He would be pissed off at me if I'd whitewashed it. So it's all there. And his daughter, obviously, is of the same blood. She, she feels the same way. Um, so I didn't have issues with that. I mean, I right. dealt with it as I went. It was more personal.
1: You know, I read the, the Wall Street Journal review that, um, was rather critical. Um, I'm not going to ask you to rebut it or, you know, to deal anything with it, but I, it does raise a question, I think, that that is a fair question, about issues of moral proportionality, about how we contextualize the savagery of the war from the American perspective and not acknowledge or not deal with the very real question of Japanese atrocity, Japanese... Culpability. No, I'm not. am not asking you to, to to rebut that, but I mean is, or or, or to to defend yourself. Or, um, you know, is there is there something that we should be aware of as we strive to understand the war that yeah. we don't get from standard narratives?
0: Well, standard narrative is Japan attacked us out of the blue. We're minding our own business, and they just attacked us. Mm-hmm. And oh, you know, we have to we have to go fight them. If you look at history, uh, which I'll get into in a minute, but I was good friends with Iris Chang, who did The Rape in Nanking. Right. Uh, as she was doing the research, her grandparents were in Nanking. And yes. She was doing the research for that book. Traumatic. Right. And the Japanese were brutal.
1: Yeah, and on, on a side note, too, she caught great deal of criticism for going too far, some said. Exactly. The,
0: the Japanese nationalists do not like her book. So so Jap- the, yeah, the Japanese were not. They were. They were... Wherever they invaded, they were terrible uh, 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 conquerors. Uh, So, but, having said that, look at the history. Why did Japan attack us? It goes back to 1853, when Commodore Perry blasted his way into Tokyo Harbor and said, you will trade with us. Mm -hmm. The Japanese resented it. He went to Okinawa and pillaged, basically. Uh,
1: You will trade with us. And they were resentful. Resentful, but also over time, I'm not going to say grateful, but accepting of it, because it brings them what, into the 20th century. What happened was they militarized. Right. They didn't want that to happen again.
0: So, in a large way, mm-hmm. we built the Japanese military by the invade, by Commodore Perry going And subsequent
1: events along
0: the exactly. way. Exactly. So... You know, we're part of their militarization, and the reason they, they got justified the militarization, we don't want to be told what to do by these guys again, mm-hmm. but they did bring it, and in, in the, in the Japanese nationalists, of course, you're right, right. loved it. Okay, now you know, they're, they're ascendant in Japan. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we had Japanese exclusion here yeah. uh, in the 20s. Before that, the most critical point is war with Spain, mm-hmm. the ginned Up War with Spain. We now know that the main probably wasn't sunk by the the Spanish. Uh, But we, you know, Teddy Roosevelt charges up the hill. We build our empire. Now, war with Spain, we got Cuba and Puerto Rico, but we also took Guam and the Philippines. And the Japanese were righteously angry. They were an empire. We were an empire. Mm -hmm. We basically, this empire came in their backyard and took what they saw as their sphere of influence.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Of course, after we take the Philippines, there's the bloody... Uh, rolled against the Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we crushed it with horrible... Uh, we burned whole villages. It was, it was... We were as bad as the Japanese.
1: Uh, well, so, well, I, I did as know the story, and I wouldn't quite go that far. Well,
0: but, if you look at some of the... I forget the general... My friend Greg Jones just did a book. Did you see his book on... Uh, mm-hmm. About the...
1: I haven't seen that, but I've interviewed David Silby, who's also written about the Philippine Insurrection, and acknowledges that there were atrocities, that there was violence. Um, But it's not a question of the baby whose book is right or wrong. Yeah, Yeah. who's who's the war? Yeah, Yeah. you know,
0: maybe we weren't by degrees we weren't as bad as the Japanese, but we were not nice. And many, I'll grant many, many died. Uh, And of course, we prevailed and crushed the rebellion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guam was not Guam; just pretty much just just fell under our sphere sphere of influence. So we were in imperial power in the Japanese backyard. And what people forget is it was supposed to be simultaneous. It was actually 12 hours apart. Bombing at Pearl Harbor, they also bombed Subic Mm -hmm. uh, in the Philippines. Uh, There was a miscommunication. It was bad weather. 12 hours later, they're bombing. And Clark Air Force Base. uh, Landings follow. they, They wanted the Philippines. Right. And and so they thought they would
1: neutralize us, we would be weak, and we wouldn't fight back. Well, it was neutralizing us so that they could make the real grab for the real goodies. Which exactly. Which was the Dutch East Indies because of the American oil embargo in 1940. Exactly. And the steel, the steel, right. the whole steel issue. That's where, that's where the East Avenue L went, actually, was into yeah. into Japanese battleships. But what's interesting is
0: Senator Beveridge in 1898, he was, he was against the war with Spain, and yeah. he predicted them. Japan will attack us someday for this. Yes. Um and it came to pass. So there's a prehistory. Was Japan right? No. But were we absolutely right? Well, we weren't saints either in the history no. of things. So but when you start raising those questions, it it really scares some people. Not just
1: Well, it's the same it's the same response perhaps as some have to the bombing of German cities. Mm-hmm. Was it Morally proportionate to the evils the Germans have done, and many will argue it's a moot question. Others will say, "Well, yes, it's not more proportionate." Exactly,
0: and and so, but there's but my point is is even preceding those questions is is why do wars happen, and and you know we weren't saints in the matter is what I'm saying. We we sowed some of the seeds and. Japan, the military, horrible. I mean, I have no. Again, I don't like yeah. nationalists of any stripe. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't black and white. It wasn't like we're the white horse, they're the black horse, and 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 we we do no wrong. So, you know, so in history, you have cause and effect, and I think it's good to be aware of that. And then that's why it's important. That's why Dower's book is important. Right. That's why I touched on it a little bit,
1: very little in this book. This book wasn't meant to be an argument. It's not that kind of book, I would argue. Yeah, yeah. Take the words from mouth. It's not that kind of book where there is a room for blame. Or... Right.
0: But I think it's something I, I wanted to contextualize uh, in terms of touching on it and touching on some of the backs, just a little bit of the backstory. And I would do it again. Now, others have also not liked it. But I think as a writer, as a journalist, as a. I try to get at truths mm-hmm. in my work. There is no
1: absolute truth, as you know.
0: But I think if I just cut all that out in the backstory, it's kind of it's missing something.
1: Well, it becomes a collection of wartime horror stories, really, without that. Like I said at the start of the interview, you know, the value for me as a historian is looking at it and saying, okay, this is a thumb in the eye of the Greatest Generation mythology, not a one, not one that's that's done out of malice. But it's a necessary corrective. Well, it's not a threnia. I won't go that far. It's a, it's, it's it's.
0: I think it's a realistic portrayal mm-hmm. of to our date, to our detriment, to the danger of our, what we do in the future. When you glamorize any war, yeah. you're treading on da- on bad ground. And I, not all the guys would agree, but many of the guys would agree with that statement. My dad would agree with that statement. Right. That's why he would always say, "There are no heroes. Right. Don't make this into something." Glorious and yeah. grand. It was shit. So, anyway, so I, you know, I wasn't, I, I you know, I, I love, it. except for Kennedy, I love these guys. And I have a, a heightened awareness and respect for veterans. Caring for veterans is not a political issue. I don't care if you're left, right, or center. Right. We've got to take care of these men and women. There's no ifs, ends, or buts about that. And so I take issue with people who, certain people who say I'm anti veteran. Several conservatives on my Facebook page. Commented about it. your book's not anti-veteran. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite. Yeah, this is pro-veteran. This is pro-human.
1: uh human. It's a pro-human book. Yeah, well, it's a very humanistic book, I think. And, and some may disagree with that description. But you're taking—you know—this is the crucible of, of abject horror. I mean, this is the ninth. I mean, the eighth, seventh, eighth, ninth century of hell. Yeah. And you're taking people who had been through this crucible and giving them a chance to open up, and you know. Really? Just to heal their souls. Yes. That's that's really what, that was my goal. That you asked earlier about the one from Welligan
0: to something else. It became that group therapy session. Mm-hmm. I discovered as much about myself as I hope in talking to them that some of these folks, both the men and their children, discovered about themselves. It was a journey for all of us. I except for Kennedy, I don't write about people I don't like. Yeah. There's some people who aren't in the book.
1: Does he become a straw man then?
0: I think I needed to put him in there because he represents many things. Mm -hmm. The psychopath, that dark side, that maybe he's a straw man. But I like to, you know, the people I wrote about in this book, I feel something important to say to the world, not just to me. And there's some people I didn't put in the book. Not that I didn't like them. I didn't trust them or I don't... You know they weren't quite open enough, yeah. or so I, I try to. You know pick people, and all my books are like that. I pick people I like. Uh, I don't write from mallet, hate. I write from love, uh, in all my work. Uh, I guess I'm a humanist. Um, so that's yeah. why anybody who you know people will challenge me on the politics, which is I don't think are in there. But to say I'm anti veteran or or to dismiss the human story,
1: some people or, or call you an apologist exactly. Yeah.
0: Wars human. Yeah. And I'll never apologize for that caring for people.
1: You end with Okinawa, and there's so much to ask there, but we are we are running running down here. I, I don't know if even those who read the book can quite understand just how important that was. What was really behind going to Okinawa? It's not just about returning past. No, no. It's, I call it the island
0: of ghosts. Mm-hmm. Going to Okinawa uh, and seeing it today, seeing where these things had happened, was illuminating in so many ways. Um, Mr. Yamada, mm-hmm. the most amazing man. He was, you know, there weren't there aren't many Japanese survivors. Uh, no, hundred ten thousand Japanese soldiers, seven thousand lived through the battle, yeah. and most of them are dead. But I found Mr. Yamada, who was one of the boy soldiers, Takino the, the Kino Tai. And he was like 14 when they drafted. Him. Right. And since 19, he came back to the island in 1954. He was a prisoner of war. And he went through just absolute horror as anybody on the island did. No one on the island didn't go through horror. Mm-hmm. And he comes back, and his friend Tatsuo, he was carrying wounded uh, uh, at the bottom of the island, he set him down, mm-hmm. and then he fled to a cave. And he, since 1954, he, going to where he set the body down uh, and twice a week in recent years, there's a trail in the jungle. I, when I first went with him, I thought, oh, it's a hiking trail for tourists. Yeah. And it dead ends in this jungle at like this coral outrock, rock outcrop, and he praised Tatsuo, his friend, twice a week since 1954. And he's living with the war. And just his take and he didn't want to question either. Uh, the Americans and the Japanese have a lot in common in a lot of ways. You know, I started asking about battle strategy, why, what, what, the, what the Japanese generals did to them. They were they were horrible. The, the, the Japanese uh, 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 generals and brass and he, he didn't want to go there. He's to talk to other people. Like talk to uh, he he got all flustered and nervous. Right. So I got to see he didn't he didn't want to go to war. And I got to other soldiers, that I, Japanese soldiers I, that I talked to. So I got their perspective. I went to Sugarloaf Hill, which is now... They're trying to forget the war. They put a water tower on top of it. It's There's a little plaque. It's And Joe Lanciati had told me during the battle, he said, I know there'll be a parking lot for a shopping center where we were fighting someday. Hmm. So I'm standing on Sugarloaf Hill. And there's a picture in the book. There's a Prada and Dior on the side of a shopping mall, hmm. right where... <laughs> 6,000 guys died. Yeah. Uh, it just shows the stupidity of war. Uh, and so seeing that, seeing, I, I, I'm just giving you snapshots of just the impressions. Going to uh, Hill 69, not far from where General Bruckner was killed. And there's, I climbed, this is the last battle my the dad's, my dad wasn't there for sure. Right, right. But But Fenton Greenert, it's where Fenton Greenert was shot in the face by a Japanese sniper. And I crawled through the jungle to the top of this hill, which is all overgrown And there's a the main Japanese cave defense. There's the cave. I lowered myself into it I had a headlamp, and I find that's a hazard just uh, on itself. So. Oh, there's these dangerous these habu snakes that'll one bite you dead. All
1: snakes? unexploded that's an ordinance. God knows what else. Oh, God knows yeah. what else. But I had
0: to go in this cave. So I crawl into this cave, and it's all blown up. You could tell that munitions had blown up in there. Mm-hmm. There's rotting soles of Japanese shoes. And there's American grenade fragments still there 67 years later. I took a picture and I put them back. And, yeah. uh, those grenades probably were thrown by L company guys, from my, guys from my dad's company, Ed, Ed Hopin, uh, uh could, probably could have thrown that grenade. So I'm holding this stuff. So, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm just, and I went to the tomb where Mr. Mulligan died. Okay. Uh, Still blown out. Part of it's still blown yeah. out, and I won't get into the, right. the spiritual stuff that happened there, but it was intense. So uh, it was a very—it was psychologically for me it on many levels. Understanding
1: that war, I had to see that island. Do you think that ultimately, as as we remember it, I'm going to get esoteric here? No, our memories of war do become ghost stories. Oh, yeah. In all cases. I think so. I mean, not like, you know, the, the, the classic, you know, the dead of Gettysburg marching, but we're, we're living through experiences of death. We're remembering death. The specters never leave
0: us. The dads come home in the World War II case. They raise their kids. The war is overt, and it, uh, when they have the raging fits, I keep hearing from all these kids, mm-hmm. dad, we, we all have the same father. Uh, yeah. The PTSD, the memories, the suppression of horror, what it did to our families. So, yeah, those ghosts, those ghosts, they, they travel, they yeah. stay
1: for a long time. Every war, not just World War II. Yeah. It really is a transformative story, and it's not transformative in the sense of a rite of passage. It's the end of a page, it's the end of youth, the end of, of innocence.
0: Every guy and kids who knew their fathers best talked not as poetically,
1: but that's what that's what we talked about. Yeah. yeah. See, I want to thanks for the chance to talk about bringing Mulligan home. You know, this has really you know, been a special interview. And uh, it's it's a book I recommend and I want I hope the others will be driven to read it. Thank you so much. It was a, it's,
0: it's a hard one to talk about. At some point I'm going to stop talking about it Because it is so personal It's not like a book I'm going to talk about a hundred times Yeah. So I'm 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 glad to have shared it with you And and I hope your listeners uh, uh, Makes them think about war Makes them think about some of these
1: issues I hope so On behalf of New Books in Military History This is Bob here, Signing off Thank you for listening You've been listening to our interview with Dale Meharich The author of Bringing Malagat Home The Other Side of the Good War This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening.